Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the Rough Trade Books Club. It is April already. Um, This marks a year and a bit of us doing this. So this being um, a monthly kind of conversation with authors and some music with myself, Matthew Clayton, and with Nina, who is the head honcho at Rough Trade Books, and uh, Will Burns, who is our poet in residence, now novelist in residence. Um, Each month we have two guests. This month we have Sophia Akel, um, hello, Sophia. How's your day going? Hi, good, thanks. What have you been doing? Have you been at work? Have you been at home or at home and at work? At home and at work. I've had a few meetings this morning, but other than that, it's, yeah, been a good day. It's nice and sunny. And what's been your um, meeting software of choice today? <laughs> Microsoft Teams, the bane Microsoft. of my life. <laughs> Microsoft Teams is the only one I haven't used. I've used everything else except for Microsoft Teams, I think, in the last year. I'm pleased <laughs> to say I have no favourites at all. Um, they're all equally, <laughs> equally annoying. Um, so alongside Sophia, we've got Chris Power, who is a uh, uh, novelist, and his novel, A Lonely Man, comes out in two – well, it will have come out by the time this show goes out, but it's as we're recording a little bit in advance, it's come out in two days, I think, Chris, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, two days. Two days. We always have. Uh, so I work as an editor as my kind of day job, and um, particularly, I mean, you're not a first time author. This is your second book, I think. Um, mm. People will often say to us, you know, should I keep the month three of publication? And I'm always thinking, yes, yeah, it's not <laughs> going to go that well. <laughs> you might need to keep a couple of hours free, but it's not going to be a whole month. Um, and pub- publication day can be slightly a slightly uh, disappointing thing. Have you got plans for it? Are you doing anything nice? You, have you got, in fact, I think you've got a uh, a event at the R- LRB bookshop. Is that right? I have. Yeah, I actually had. Um, I think last week was the, the closest I might ever get to a kind of uh, glamorous world of publicity, where I had like three interviews in three days and a and a photo shoot in uh, in Victoria Park, which I um. Wow. So I've gave myself, uh, or I asked my wife to give me an an undercut before to uh, kind of get rid of my clownish uh, lockdown hair, which um, which spurred some panic. But uh, but the photographer rolled with it; she was unfazed. So hopefully, we'll find out in a couple of weeks when the papers when the pictures get published how uh, how it looked. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait to see that. Um, <laughs> and Will, you've been busy as well. You've been you're in a pub last night, live on YouTube. Yeah, we had a, a little interview with um, Carl Gosling from the social and the social gathering, who we had on as a guest, didn't we, a couple of months ago? Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, we had a we had a sort of uh, socially distanced chat in uh, in my parents' pub, 
which is the sort of setting for for a, a book I've a book that's publishing later in the summer. Um, and what was that for? What was that to mark? Uh, well, it was a first year anniversary of that social gathering website that Carl was on talking about, actually. Um, so yeah, the the kind of online version of 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 the bar that they that they've been working on all year. Um, so they had some other bits and bobs on there. They had William Bazinski chatting to David Keenan, and then they had a, a sort of collaborative music and film piece um, that was the musician Heather Lee and Jennifer Lucy yeah. Allen, um, who's written a book about foghorns for um, what that Lee Brackstone's White Rabbit um, imprint. Uh, so yeah, that, it was all it was all really good and um, yeah, like you know, interesting work and people seem to be online and enjoying things in that online way. Cool. All right. So um, <clears throat> today, what we're going to do is we're going to speak to Nina in a sec about what's coming up on Rough Trade, and then we're going to speak to Sophia about her free books campaign that she started. Um, last July, I think. And then we will move on to Will's kind of usual uh, poetry corner. And then um, we're going to speak to Chris about A Lonely Man, which is his novel that's coming out in a couple of days. So let's start with a bit of music, though. So this is something that Nina has picked. Do you want to introduce it, Nina? Um, This is a track by The Pogues because we... Uh, this Last week, I think it has been, uh, we watched a documentary called Crock of Gold... Uh, about Shane McGowan and we we kind of watched it because a friend of mine who is soon to be a rough trade books author Wilfred Wood um did a load of he's a he's a sculptor and uh, an artist and he did a load of drawings of Shane McGowan and he put them up on Instagram and I looked at them and I thought they were brilliant um and asked him what's what's the fascination with Shane McGowan all of a sudden even he told us that about this documentary so we hunted it down and uh, and had a watch uh, which was quite amusing. Um, Will can talk more about it because I actually did fall asleep. I've got a, I've got a tendency to do that. Um, but what I saw, it was great. I'm just, all right, well, let's, just let's tired hit. all the time. Yeah, enough, enough of that, Nina. Um, let's listen. To, let's listen to the music, and I'll talk to Will about it. So, Will, are you a Pogues fan? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, not not one with a sort of um, you know whole back catalogue on vinyl and you know CD. Uh, not one of those kind of kind of fans, but definitely um, definitely like them when I when I hear them. And um, uh, if I should fall from grace with God was a, was quite a sort of uh, um, present record in my in my in my mum and dad's house when I was growing up so right. uh, yeah like that they're, they're at that sort of level um and I thought the I thought the film was 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 great actually um I mean Nina said amusing and obviously bits of it were but it was also um quite sad and um uh and and uh you know and well it sort of ran the ran the gamut of emotions that good films about people like that should do I suppose um uh and and this sort of interesting use of drawings and it's Julian Temple made the, made the film and um, yeah, sort of, yeah, it, it was just interestingly 
he was positioned quite interestingly in as as the sort of main character i thought it was sort of wasn't a traditional kind of rags to riches narrative or uh, um a, you know the a kind of hero's journey it, it it was sort of um a little bit a little bit different to that but then i suppose he's had a life that's a little bit different to that hasn't he in some ways yeah i just thought it was very sad i thought he shouldn't have been on film i didn't like it really no, um, no i think i think he's such he's such a yeah not in a good way yeah, I thought the, the the footage of him, you know, c- c- contemporary footage. I definitely think that's um, that that's a valid uh, a valid point. But, um, but then, uh, you know, I, 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 equally, you know, he, there was still a sort of def- defiance to 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 how he wanted to talk about things that 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 felt like it like it could be sort of justifiably uh, documented as well and not but, but you know really the the old footage was what i what i really really loved you know there's that sort of sort of golden period after after the sort of after he found punk and and the, and went and um was was part of that movement but and when just started to to reintroduce the sort of irish music into his into his um writing and everything i just thought he looked he looked he looked brilliant and um you know, uh, and the, and the music, the music was music's great as well. And, and I, I thought some of the stuff he said about writing in general, you know, like, um, you know, about Irish poetry and things like that, were were you know, were moments of kind of still moments of lucidity. You know, when he said about WB Yeats, you know, what one good poem or one good fucking poem or whatever he said, yeah. and uh, you know, still a still a light in the eyes. All right. Well, um, <laughs> we're going to disagree on that, Will, I think. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we need not carry on disagreeing with it here. Um, Nina, let's play another of your tracks to introduce um, what we're going to talk about next, which is you're going to shine a spotlight on one of the pamphlets. Will you explain what the pamphlet is and what music you've picked to go with it to begin with? Well, it's actually the first of our small books, not a pamphlet. It's... Um, Roof Dog, A Short History of the Windmill, which is a, um, a venue, a flat roof pub in, in Brixton, um, which was formerly a, an Irish boozer. See the, see the connection there between the Pogues and this. Um, and we published this this time last year. So there was going to be like loads of great events happening. And, you know, obviously none of that happened. But it came about because um, the author, Will Hodgkinson, uh, wrote... Um, I think he sent out a tweet saying something about the windmill doing something at South by Southwest a couple of years ago. And so I I approached Will and uh, after seeing that tweet, I asked him if he would be um, up for writing a pamphlet about it um, because I was supposed to be doing this potential panel taking place at South by Southwest. And... Um, I thought it would be pretty good because, and the subject matter on on this panel was um, this flat roof pub in Brixton being the epicenter of London's underground music scene. So it's, um, so that's what it's about. It's very short. It's um, got accompanying images, uh, which are by his son, Otto and Otto frequents the windmill as well. um, And he ignores his dad when his dad's there at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just about loads of the bands that have kind of gone through the windmill and gone on to bigger things 
but but it's kind of kept its roots. It's it's just a real gritty place. Um, I, I, I've never actually been there. Have, have both of you been there? I'm presuming. Will used to do a night there, a regular night there. Well, yeah, I've, I've been I've been quite a few times. It's it's and it is a real um, sort of particular specific place. It's definitely got you know its own um, ecosystem and uh, and and you know a, a real important part of the London live music sort of sphere, I suppose. Right. Well, we were we were actually going to play a song, weren't we? So, Nina, what was the first song that oh, we got sorry, to go okay. with? Oh, sorry, okay, yeah. Let's play uh, Woohoo by the 5678s. Okay, so here it is. Is that a track that's in the Quentin Tarantino film? It is a track that's in uh, Kill Bill. Um, And uh, in 2004, just after that, uh, I think it was just after Kill Bill came out, they played in the windmill. Now, the windmill is like a really tiny kind of little dive bar. And apparently when they played, it was just packed to the rafters and probably, you know, over capacity. But I'm sure... They don't want to go into too much detail on that. But, um, yeah, apparently a great night was had by all. And, Will, um, what, was the, what was the night that you ran there? It was a sort of um, alternative country, you know, Americana thing, just a load of us. I mean, you know, kind of looking back now, it, is a, it might as well have been a sort of fancy dress uh, <laughs> night. Really. You know, we might as well have been walking around in cowboy hats and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it, it was... It's a couple of friends' bands played sort of regularly, and there was just a, a, a few of us that had um, that had bands of that ilk, and, and yeah, we 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 kind of played there once a month. It was good fun, and like, like I say, a really great a really great place, and um, and it was at that the age where uh, a bit of afters in in Brixton was never a bad thing either. So um, yeah, good good times. Really- what was it called? It was called. It was on a Saturday night, and it was called Sadder Days. Um, it's sort of awful, Fun times. awful pun, really. And yeah, like not a great sell for a Saturday night either. Come, <laughs> come and cry into your Guinness with um, with a bunch of blokes in check shirts. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go go there for half an hour now. But um, but yeah, it was it was good good fun. I didn't want to get any John Deere sponsorship, Will. Yeah, that. Do you know what? If if we didn't have it, it certainly looked like there was plenty of. Yeah, right in the middle of that trucker cap um, explosion. Yeah, it. Yeah. Trucker cap explosion would have been a great name for it. That would have been a better name. Yeah. Yeah. I've got band band ideas in my head now. Uh, Will, what was that? What was the highlight of it? So, what was the best? Can you remember one moment of that was like, yeah, this is amazing. Well, there, there, yeah, there was a there was a couple. I mean, this is sort of I should 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 be a retrospective warning if there is such a such a, a thing. Um, it, but the the first night was was great, um, because we had the, my friend's band playing. They were they were quite big at the time. Called band called Breaks, and we had them on. And um, yeah, talk about over selling it we, we we sort of did that that night so it was it was really really packed and um everyone 
everyone had a great night. But um, but we all, I also had a um, night where the, where a real musical hero turned up and and, and came along to one. Um, is that, it sounds like a plane in someone's front room. Now. <laughs> um, yeah, a guy called Jason Molina came down um, to 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 well to see see my band actually strangely and and at the time he was well a real hero of everyone in the everyone in the band so that was pretty good. Um, yeah, he was another another tragic rock and roll figure in in lots of ways, but um, yeah, they, yeah, like I say, great. Great, great night. And what was the what was the last one? How did you? What did you go out on a high? Do you know what? I think the last time I was the last time I was there, I've got a feeling um, it was another time that Jason turned up. I I was playing on my own, and um, it kind of is a high and a low in classic me style. It was a sort of tragic comic moment because I was playing just yeah just on my own, and um, I started doing a Warren Zevon cover. And um, Jason came on stage to sing it with me. He's a bit massive Warren Zevon fan as well. And uh, he, we, the, there was this, the height discrepancy is such that I was sat down on a normal, <laughs> not on a bar stool, tall bar stool, a normal low chair. And Jason was standing, and we were able to share a microphone. So that that looked comic <laughs> and then I didn't know he was going to do this, and so he totally threw me, and I forgot the words as well so it was sort of it was a brilliant moment that I'll always be able to say oh you know I remember being on stage and singing with Jason Molina but um if you were actually there it was it wasn't as as as, as glamorous and kind of uh Springsteenian as it as it sounded it was um yeah definitely a kind of toast of London um triumphal triumphant moment that, that that fell on its face a little bit well, uh, it, it sounds like a, it sounds like a, I'd love to witness it. I guess. <laughs> right, let's have um, Nina. What's your last bit of music then for this section? What have you picked? So before I introduce that, I was going to big up uh, Tim Perry, who books all of the bands and has done since uh, two thousand and two, and he's he's really the guy who's made the windmill what it is today. Right. Um, and he's he started off um, by his his love for country and hip hop, so he kind of combine the two and he's kind of he was the guy responsible for Alabama 3 really putting them on at the at the windmill and they became a proper windmill band so they I'd say that they were kind of like one of the first bands to emerge from that that place but um yeah and then and then there's been like Mika Levi Fat White Family Shame Black Midi but I'm going to play Goat Girl today uh The Crack because they're on Rough Trade and they were supposed to be playing at our launch last year. Well, they were going to be doing a DJ set last year. So, um, yeah, this is from their second album, which came out in January. It's called The Crack and it's by Goat Girl. Right, thanks, Nina. That was fab. Um, Sophia, I wanted to turn my attention to you now. Um, so, so, <laughs> um, and specifically, I wanted to start by asking you a bit about your local library because I read somewhere that you had a library near where you grew up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when did you start going to the library? What are your kind of first recollections of the library? 
Oh, I don't remember what age I was. I'm probably like seven because I was allowed to go over the road by myself to library. Right. <laughs> so I must have been of a decent age. Um, yeah, I loved it because Matilda was my icon and my hero growing up. And I just right. wanted to be like her because I guess right. she made reading cool for, for my age. Right. And so I'd go to the library and try and get out as many books as I can so I could stack them up just like she did. <laughs> 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 I didn't have one of them little pulley carts, but I tried. <laughs> and what was the library um, like? Was it big, small? It was a modest library, so it was like medium size. There was computers there as well, so we didn't yeah. have a computer when I was when I first moved to the area when I was a child. So I was able to go and use the the printers there and the computers, and like I got to know the librarians as well. So as a kid, that was really nice. Like they'd recognize you, they'd recommend books to you based on what you'd been checking out. And it was just such a nice, like extended community. Yeah, I think they're really extraordinary places, aren't they? Because they serve a community in sort of more than just handing out books. Yeah, Um, exactly. But also like the, any attempts to kind of re, um, rework them or kind of redefine them as kind of you know creative hubs or ever always seems doomed to failure because they're such a peculiar mix of stuff that they um provide for people I think um, yeah they're a good place for people especially if you're homeless as well and you just want somewhere to go during the day so you can still stay connected and read like you probably couldn't check the books out but you know it was a space for everyone to go to and that library closed down yeah which is sad but um, and where was yeah, it? Where was the library? Romford. And do you go to a library now or not? No, I don't, admittedly. Um, yeah, they've all been closed as well. well our, our local library's been closed. And was that, yeah. so is that how you started reading from the library or did we, were there books at home as well or not? Um, I had a few books growing up, but we couldn't really afford to to buy the amount of books that I would have liked to have read, or or even that many books. So I'd wait for like World Book Day and get my one pound voucher and go to Bookstones right. and then choose out of all the different one pound books you could buy. Right. Um, and I guess having the library across the road as well saved that extra financial pressure on my mum, who's a single parent, right. so I could just go over to the library and check out the books and borrow books from there. And so how does this kind of morph into the campaign that you set up last year? How did that kind of come about? Um, so the campaign, it has, it's, it's a bit of a complicated origin story. So okay. bear with me, I'll try and explain. <laughs> um, so in the height of the Black Lives Matter protest last year, I worked with Verso Books to get physical books by black authors or books that spoke about police brutality and state violence against black people to people who wanted to educate themselves and to learn more about it. And so they were already giving out books online, but not everyone's able to access, um, like, uh, what's it called? Not everyone's able to read books online for various different reasons. And some people prefer to have physical copies and also people that who aren't on social media wouldn't have found out about these books. So I worked with them to try and get physical copies of those books to people within kind of my networks and their networks and their families and their friends and, and to try and get out as many as possible. Because last year there was a big kind of scramble for knowledge about this that for yeah. for many people it's the first time they actually really reckoned with the fact that we live in a racist society yeah um and then kind of as that grew there was I was getting a few messages from people asking if they could donate 
but because it was for a publisher, they were funding it. So I set up a a fundraiser to get books by people of colour that weren't just about race because there's a big gap in like in what books we study at school all the way through to higher education where you don't really get to learn or read about the lives and experiences and histories and perspectives of people of colour. So what I wanted to do was kind of fill in that gap and get books by people of colour to those who can't afford them. So right the way from like a baby's book all the way through to an adult so like as as long as you're being honest and the you know you couldn't afford it you don't have to disclose anything about why it's just completely built on trust and I'll send you a book so yeah that's that's the origin story (laughs) and how's it been has it been an enjoyable thing to do has it been a revelatory thing to do what have you kind of learned from it Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, it, it's been really heartwarming because obviously it started by people DMing me asking to donate. So it's been built really organically from communities, I feel like. People that wanted to do something themselves and and it's just grown really beautifully. Like there's people working within publishing industry that have been donating books, including Rough Trade books. Well there are people <laughs> There are people that have been donating money and if they don't have any resources, then they've been sharing and we've been able to um, branch out to local uh, organisations, schools, youth clubs, community centres in Lewisham and Newham, two of some of the most deprived boroughs in London to get physical books there as well. So they can be redistributed. So, yeah, it's it's just been really wonderful because I'm consciously aware of any kind of position or space that I occupy and in the kind of work that I do with race equity, that I'm afforded certain network. So what's the point in having them if we can't use them for good? Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. And how did you start doing race equity work? How did that journey begin? <laughs> Another complicated story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was a student at Lancaster University and Lancaster is a very white area, not very diverse at all including the subjects you could study. So I was a history student and I took a year out, um, I did a year abroad in America, in North Carolina. So for a bit of like context of North Carolina, it was was the state that wanted to secede from the union twice because they wanted to uphold slavery. Right. So, you know, the KKK still parade around, like it's that kind of state. Right. Um, So it was a bit of, it was quite a baptism of fire for me. And it was kind of the first time that I personally had felt my life threatened by police. Right. And and just how I was treated by other people. It's a, it, There's a very kind of British form of racism that's quite covert and subtle and passive aggressive. Right. But in America, it's a whole different kettle of fish. So when I came back to England, I was determined to to try and well to try and make society as better as I could in whatever voice and power that I might have at that time so I started by looking at education because education it it helps shape our world views and I think it's extremely important for when we then go out into society that we at least have a good understanding of of the structures that exist in society if that makes sense so yeah, yeah I started campaigning at university and then I got hired to work at my university and then I've just kind of gone throughout the sector <laughs> and now I'm working in London. And what was the, when you were at Lancaster, um, mm-hmm. it, what was the, why is my curriculum white? That was a, is that a, a campaign organisation that exists 
in other places in Lancaster. Is that something you set up there? Um, so I didn't set it up. It was actually set up by students at UCL. Right. And it was linked to decolonial movements that were started in South Africa. There were students that um, tore down the statue of Cecil Rhodes at a university there. Um, and then it just it translated over here. The NUS, the National Union of Students, also led the campaign too. So there was different pop-ups around different universities. So I brought it to my university. And what was uh, what are the foundations of the ideas behind it? It's to decolonize education, which is to say that we move away from a Eurocentric Western view of everything. So with with how education systems set up right now, like education is inherently political. What we study, what whose voices get omitted, which ones get included, which ones get platformed. Yeah. So it's about looking beyond just our Western lens because. Through, through education, it's assumed that we can understand the entire world, all the different cultures, histories, everything through our one perspective. So it's about looking beyond that and also challenging what, what, what are legitimate forms of knowledge. In, in England, you might say that it's you might consider something to be a legitimate form of knowledge if it's gone through a university and researched yeah. academically. But why? Like there's people who, for example our ancestors who had a really strong bond with nature who understood that nature's power for healing why would they be considered any less knowledgeable so it's yeah basically about trying to revolutionize our education so that it's not just student as a passive learner academic as a teacher kind of dynamic right and can you talk a bit more about North Carolina then what were you studying in North Carolina what was your what were your first impressions when you got there and how did you feel about it when you left a year later um so I was studying history there I also did a science module which was <laughs> I'm not a scientist but I thought right. let me have a go right. <laughs> I, wasn't very, I wasn't very good at it um I did Arabic as well and political right. sciences um because at, at, in America you have to study loads of different things right um, yeah, um, literally on the first day I arrived, or it might have been the second day, I got called a racist name straight away. Right. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is where I'm at. Um, it has its ups and downs. Like I, I lived in an international dorm and it was really fun and it was amazing. I got to meet people from all over the world. It was way more diverse than my university. So it opened right. me up to a lot of different cultures. And, and on that side, I'm extremely grateful it also opened my eyes up to the state violence in a lot more um, overt way. It was it was right. during this year that the Ferguson protests, well, the protests were happening in Ferguson, Missouri. Right. Um, the first kind of iteration of Black Lives Matter at that time. So there was just a lot happening. Obama was still in office. So it's just like, if before I wasn't as engaged politically, I definitely was leaving. Right. And did you and did you immediately try and turn that into something over here? Then you immediately thought, how am I going to manifest those ideas I've had in America over here? Um, I think it was a period of reflection when I came back, thinking about how and what could I achieve and what could I do and how could I put my voice to good use. And it was a friend of mine that told me about the campaign. Why is my curriculum white? Right. And as a historian, it re- it really resonated with my subject area. So that was one way that I could achieve that. Right. And, and so, yeah, that, that was kind of how I got into this work. And it's 
yeah, obviously I lived the life of a black woman, a mixed race black woman. And so I have a personal stake as well as one that just wants society to be a more equitable place for people. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I've continued the work on and we'll probably be doing this for the foreseeable. Right. Uh, what What's the most recent thing you've done? What's the most recent report you've um, written? Um, my most recent published report was called Institutionalised and it was about the rise of Islamophobia in higher education. And was it for your current employee? Was it specifically looking at that university or was it looking uh, throughout the education system? Um, it was a bit of both. So the throughout higher education, Islamophobia remains a a form of discrimination that is easily recognised but not spoken of enough right. in the sector. It's quite normalised in the sector. So it means that a lot of behavioural policies, code of conduct, all of those different things don't actually acknowledge that this is a form of like institutional discrimination. Right. So I wanted to look at the sector to provide that background and context, but also look specifically at my university. I looked at the staff and student experience in relation to that. So I spoke to Muslim students and staff. And is it a problem that you think is going to get better? Is it something that has just been kind of constant for a long time? What's the sort of dynamics of it? <laughs> it depends on the day that you ask me, because sometimes right. I'm like, I feel really hopeless. Like, right. I feel that, you know, the weight of societal change, meaningful societal change is, is gargantuan. Right. But at the same time, we have to hope and we have to continue working because I do believe things can get better. Right. but probably not at speed. And how do you feel change comes about in that area? Um, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of it is people educating themselves. Like if, if due to use race, for example, a lot of people speak about it in a way that doesn't acknowledge the fact that it's socially, con- um, socially created. Yeah that there isn't any biological or scientific underpinning or basis to it. It's a pseudoscience literally created by a bunch of elite white academics. And the, a lot of the conversations that we have about anti-racism actually fuel those exact categories as if they are legitimate forms. Right. So I think that going back to the roots of how we got here is really important to educate yourself on those, on, on the history of it and, right. and society. So like, Sociology is a subject I'd absolutely advocate for. It was one of the subjects that opened my eyes up to a lot of things as well. Yeah. Um, but also, like, I think everyone has a voice. This is going to sound cliche, but everyone has a voice and everyone occupies a certain amount of power or influence or or at least have some communications with family and friends, even at a you know, really small grassroots level. And that calling things out is one thing, but also bringing people on that journey of understanding and learning as well is really important. So I'd say, like, on a, at an individual level, we can all affect change, but it can't be about us as individuals. It has to be collective liberation. Right. Okay. Let's um, let's have some music now. Okay. So this is a track that you've chosen, which is um, "Bridging the Gap" by Naz. Um, let's listen to it, and then I'm going to ask you about it in a sec. The light is there. See, I come from Mississippi, great man life. Rest in peace, Ray Charles. Okay, that was Naz bridging the gap. So why did you uh, choose that, Sophia? Was there any particular reason other than you just quite liked it? 
Um, I, I think that song has stuck with me because it's, I, I find it quite beautiful in the way that it builds on the rich tradition of oral history and storytelling between yeah. generations. So obviously Naz is in dialogue with his dad, Oludara, and they're talking about blues and its evolution all the way through to hip hop. So I really love that. And I think in relation to the Free Books campaign, the, the campaign is about telling our stories and not just about race, but also about our creativity, our culture, our music, our expression. So I think that fits in quite nicely. And it's a, it's a great song. <laughs> and have you been listening to lots of music in lockdown or not really? How's your life changed? Um, yeah, to be honest, I've not been listening to as much as I would probably normally, probably because I'm just staying indoors all the time. Like I usually right. listen to music when I'm traveling. Yeah, I find myself working a lot um, and just, yeah. I've tried to slow down mentally, though, and just enjoy the things around me. Like, I've really enjoyed seeing people out cycling and and hanging out with their families and just the nicer side you don't really see because London's always go, go, go. And have you been into the office at all or have you just been strictly at home? Strictly at home. I started this job at home, so I've not even met my colleagues in real life. Oh my god! <laughs> How's yeah, that? That sounds so strange. <laughs> it was really weird at the beginning because obviously you have to like chat to them on Zoom or Microsoft Teams, and just like getting through the awkwardness of the silence in conversations and that. That was weird, <laughs> and like people message each other on there too, which feels a bit like texting. So I was like, this feels right. too over familiar. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like it's all right now. I started in July last year, so things are right now. Now I'm worried about meeting them in real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And have, have there, has there been anything good that's come out of it? Is there anything that you've enjoyed? Um, <laughs> in terms of like my work, to sound boring, it's because I research about race. I think it's been quite helpful for people opening up to me. Right. Because they can turn off their camera if they want. They can be a bit more open because they're in the space of their home. No one's going to overhear them, like other colleagues. Do you know what I mean? So right. in terms of my work, it's been quite helpful. And what have you got planned for the campaign then? Have you got, are you just going to carry on? Have you got plans to take over the world? What's your, <laughs> are you thinking, why on earth did I do this? It's too much work. What's your kind of like, what are you thinking about it at the moment? My plans are making sure that it's less London-centric. So I want to make sure that we're getting books outside of London, which we have been, but working with more schools and organisations across the United Kingdom, not just London. But um, I'm hoping to recruit some volunteers soon as well to help with that because I run the campaign by myself alongside my full-time job and my freelance work. So I want it to be more sustainable, especially as we transition back into an I don't want to say normal going back to work <laughs> right and would you um, would you want more publishers to be involved do you think there's room for for more of them to send you books do you think you're getting enough support from the publishing industry yeah I mean I would always welcome more books from publishers and I think that this is something that the publishing industry and publishing houses should embed in their corporate social responsibility be it it doesn't even have to be in partnership with the free books campaign but the publishers send out so many books to like bookfluencers, <laughs> people yeah. online, and there's always so many proofs and so many books actually that have nowhere to go after that. 
So those books could be going to homes where people can't afford them. And it's not to underpin their market. It's to make sure that their books are actually having an impact and and reaching audiences that they might not be able to reach before. So I think that I would love to see more publishers doing that. And how do people get in touch with you if they want to? Um, They can get in touch via email. Should I read it out? (laughs) <laughs> I don't, I don't the know the answer to campaign. Right. I'll read it. Yeah. Freebitscampaign.cic at gmail.com or you can go to freebitscampaign.co.uk and then you can find out what the criteria what the criteria is to request a book. You can also just browse books. Like Even if you can afford to buy your own, you can browse them, find out a bit more about the campaign, the origins. Yeah, it's a one-stop shop. And I'll, if people... I'll also, so just sorry, Go just on, to Nina. butt in here, I'm, I was I was just going to say I'll I'll add this on to our um, Instagram post when we post about the show, and also uh, it'll be on the website as well for the listeners. Oh, thank you. Just so people can have access to it if they've heard it through this radio show. I appreciate that. Thank you. No worries. And Sophia, if people want to follow what you're up to, where, where should they do that outside of the campaign? Just like your own stuff that you're doing. Okay, um, <laughs> sound like an influencer now, but you can follow me on social media. <laughs> um, it's just Sophia Akel, at, yeah, just at Sophia Akel on Twitter and Instagram. All right, fab. Um, thanks, Sophia. That was really interesting. Uh, your campaign is amazing. You're clearly amazing. And I'm sure it's going to do really, really well over the next few years. It was really nice to have you on. Um, you're so going nice to chatting with you. And you're going to stick around, I hope, for the end of the show. And let's have a little yep. bit more music from you. So what's the, the second bit of music that you've picked? It's Wildfires by Salt. And how did you hear, hear this piece of music? Did it come recommended? What's your – is there a story? So, so an author actually published um, – published – an author actually posted about them on Twitter. Right. So that's how I found out about them. So I only actually discovered them this year, but I really like their music. Right. And what? Uh, one final thing. Um, what have you been reading recently? Is there anything you'd recommend? Oh yes, I've been reading Superior by Angela Sani. Okay. Um, that's a book about race, right? <laughs> um, and and eugenics. But I've also been reading outside of that a book called The Sex Lives of African Women, okay. and it's a really brilliant book. It's an anthology of loads of stories from Black women across the diaspora about their sex lives and about their relationships it's really candid it's really interesting and it's something quite different to what i'm usually reading so i've been enjoying that fabulous all right let's listen to um salt uh uh, by salt That was Wildfires by Salt, and that was Sophia Akel from the Free um, Free Books campaign. Um, We're going to turn our attention now to Will uh, for his monthly poetry slot, which originally started out with me um, ignorantly saying that I didn't like poetry and Will saying that he was going to persuade me to like poetry. Um, But I I quickly realised I did quite like poetry. Uh, (laughs) The first one we did, but so that sort of the the, that the the kind of um, high concepts of it never quite worked. But (laughs) the actual idea of we're speaking about poetry every month in a knowledgeable way and picking a poem that somehow had some resonance with what else we were talking on the show did really work very well. So, Will, what have you picked this month? What's your um, what's your choice? Yeah, um, it's a Terence Hayes poem. 
from uh, from his book American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, um, a book that came out a couple of years ago, um, won the National Book Award in 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 the, in the states, um, published by uh, Penguin Poetry over here, um, and um, yes, yeah, the the. I th- the I don't they're numbered, aren't they? They don't have this untitled sonnet sequence. So every every poem is nominally got the got the got the the book title as its as its own title, but in the singular rather than the plural. So American sonnet from my past and future assassin. Um, maybe I'll read it and we'll we'll, we'll chat from there. All right, um, go on then. Cool. American sonnet from my past and future assassin. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder, to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream-inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the Crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis, trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. Volters of acoustics, instinct and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. Okay, well, what the hell is going on in that poem? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's... It, it's sort of interesting from from a from a number of, of points of view. I, I, obviously, now that you've introduced this whole section as 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 not living up to its high concept, this would be the month. This this would happen to be the month, wouldn't it? Where I'm referring back to that concept. So, right. I sort of thought I, I sort of thought of this poem as, as as quite a good one in terms of you know discussing first of all how poems work in in, in within the framework of a book. Um, and right. this, this is a whole book of, 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 of sonnets, so a whole book of poems that have that share the same form. Um, and so you've got that you've got this idea that the poems must, in some way, be in conversation with each other rather than right. just existing purely on their own. Right. Um, which which then challenges the reader in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, the way that the, the the way they're reading the individual poems, the way they're reading the the whole book, um, and also. The, the poem's interesting in the way that it refers back to its formal self. So right. it it begins with this first line, I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison. Uh, and, and we're instantly in the, the realms of somebody talking about the the material world that the poem describes, as well as, as, as the world of poetry and particularly the formal um, world of, 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 of its, of, of its own kind of self um and that's a really important part of the way poetry works i think um and it's something that is incredibly well handled throughout this book and this book is uh um you know travels it it, uh, it, it travels you know huge distances conceptually um and emotionally um and and i think this poem's a, a fantastic example of 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 how terence hayes does that so so well so he builds so so perhaps you know we should start by saying that one of the things that you do when you use form and a sonnet has been such a 
fruitful form for so many people writing in the English tradition, really. So obviously that that's that's something that Terence Hayes is discussing straight away, is that this is a kind of European um, and Western uh, looking form. Um, and uh and he and and it's that that use of the word american there which probably re-emphasizes that 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 this poet is trying to say something about that um and the sonnet form is generally associated with romantic love it goes back to um italy and then through the you know french troubadour tradition it was always it was always to do with the 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 idea of courtly love and, and romantic love as that was invented really in the sort of european artistic tradition so if if someone's going to call a, a book um of sonnets um american sonnets for my past and future assassin they're straight they're, you know from the title onwards they're undermining some of those traditional um formal uh, associations so in, instead of love we have um the idea of violence and assassination but but more interesting than that in this poem those two ideas become in a kind of dialectical relationship rather than an oppositional one. So it is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. That, that those final lines are kind of they're built into um, by the by the by the writing that's gone before. This idea of the Jim and the crow as somehow representative of um, two d- different ways that the poet is interacting with the world not just interacting with the world, but actually building the world. I make you both Jim and Crow, the poet saying that he's, he's making a world through the writing of the poem. Um, and, and all the way through, there's these little dialectics, these little sort of um, sparks of, 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 of ideas that, 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 are, that are linked and have some kind of tension between them. So you have part music box, part meat grinder, um, and that's again saying something interesting about form there. Part meat grinder, part music box. Um, the form is generative of beauty in the music box, but it's also somehow um, reductive as well. It's 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 a meat grinder um, separates the song of the bird from the bone. So it's doing something that's kind of both reducing the idea of song, uh, and w- which uh, you know etymologically speaking is related to the word sonnet as well. Um, so it, it, it's it's, create, it's both creating the song and doing something to kind of reduce it somehow, um, and I think that's that's so that, that that's one of I, th- I just think it's one of the incredibly well handled use use of form throughout this book really, um, and so worth 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 discussing in light of our kind of how does poetry work high concept right, right. yeah and is it uh, can i just ask a simple question is he the subject of the poem is he talking about himself all the way through well i mean it's um that that uh, you know that that's an interesting question more broadly isn't it because it, it, it we get into the realms of of who is the the the, the lyric i um and the speaker of the poem and the poet and you know it's all it, it, if you go on the, if you go on twitter and follow a few poets you'll see them making arch kind of memes about um you know who the poet is and who the speaker of the of the of, right. of the poem is i think probably as a as a as a default position you should always think that there's some there's some difference between the poet and and the speaker there 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 has to be in the same way and perhaps chris will 
um, expand on this when he talks about the the, the, the narrator, or, I mean, even though actually the, the, his novel doesn't have a, a first person narrator. But but the, how how fiction writers use the the lens of 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 of, of character um, to to remove or bring themselves closer to to the action, and I think poets poets do 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 much the same thing really um so you want to be careful if you're thinking of the eye as always autobiographical right. in the same in the same way as you would with fiction yeah yeah i guess with this though it's uh, there's um that's an interesting point poetry feels less a fictional i guess as a form it 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 feels like it is naturally autobiographical am i wrong in making that assumption no, I don't think you're. I don't think you're wrong because I, you know, I think that there is kind of no right or wrong. If 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 instinct pulls you in that direction, then I think it's probably always worth pursuing. Um, I, I think actually this poem it, it specifically has um, it relies on that effect as well because it's talking about how you build a world from the the formal qualities of writing. So it, you know it's it's. You, you're even further into the into the, the into the the realm of the I being the person who's writing the poem. So you know, I lock you in a form. Um, it the 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 the, the I there is very close to the poet, I would say. Um, uh, and so so yeah, but, I, but and I suppose that that's one of the the the, the power of poetry is how unnerving you can make that. I how how it can slip away from the poet and and um and 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 then be pulled back to the poet. That's one of the right. ways that you, that the that poems can 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 make interesting leaps and make interesting jumps. Right. Um. If you know, if, if fiction, you probably got to have more a little bit more of a sense always of what if you're using that I, um, you 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 probably always got to have some sense of of, of how that I would act, what they would say, what they would think. Um, in the poem, you can be probably a little bit slip, slipperier. Right, and is that kind of that seems to relate to something that you've talked about before, which is that um, by essentially being a little bit more slippery with uh language that allows you to kind of enter a place where meaning is more complicated yeah yeah i i i think i think i think that's how or ambiguous rather than complicated yeah yeah ambiguous might be a might be a a, a, a better word or yeah but, it, or, but it, it's, it's it's a different kind of complication let's let's put it like that because you have meaning that's to do with sound um and like i say you know that i think you you you're addressing your your own traditions much more in a poem than right. you are in in say a piece of prose so when hayes is using the the, the the figure of the crow here um you know you're you're you're, you're straight away you're in the world of of Hughes, you're in, you know, he, he, Hayes is conjuring the canon, if you like, um, the, 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 the perhaps overly white, overly male um, canon. In the, in the same way that when he uses the word American sonnet, he's conjuring up figures like Robert Lowell. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the poem is directly addressing those, those kind of pig figures from the past. Right. Um, uh, and uh, in a way that in a way that, f that fiction can do 
um, and and nonfiction can can do, but 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 they have to do it in a slightly more direct way or something like that. And right. and on top of that, the poem has the the poem has a musical sound sense, which is perhaps more heightened than it is um, in prose, where the music is stretched out. I mean, we all we all recognise a great sentence, and it has a musical quality, but. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's pulled around and, and made slightly more elastic, and and the great sentences are, you know, quite often uh, lit up amongst, you know, other more 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 quotidian um, pieces of writing, and in, in in a way that you know the the, the poem is such such a concentrated um, example of of that kind of writing. So, yeah. It, 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 it's a different kind of complexity, I think. And what? Um, and can you speak a bit about who Terence Hayes was and when he was writing? Well, it's still still writing, and um, uh, yeah, you know, a, a, a kind of the definition of the 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 multi award winning um, po- poet, really, and 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 writer, I think, is one. Uh, it would, a couple of books have been short, have been finalists in the National Book Award. I think he's sort of. Guggenheim Fellowship, um, MacArthur Fellowship uh, winner um, or awardee, and um, yeah, just one of the one of the one of a current um, generation of of of, of big um, and uh, you know exceptional American poets, um, and that, you know just yeah, I, I, I think that book it, that book is an absolute triumph, and and. Um, and he's he's someone to to read as much as you can, I think. And how does that poem relate to the other ones in the in the book? Well, uh, like I say, I think that you know you have this ability with when, when you when you when you address a form so directly, you have this you have this ability to 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 because there's because straight away there's a formal. Um, concern that the poems have um it it does mean that you can you that you can play with that idea of how close the speaker is to your own autobiography and you've got a kind of firm basis um from from which to travel um and throughout that the, throughout that book there are there are poems that address more directly you know the the sort of black experience um in in contemporary america that address more directly familial relationships father son relationships um uh mother daughter relationships mother son um there's a you know and and so the 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 form kind of stitches them all together and i think it's one of the ways right. that that that, you, that that it allows the concepts to kind of always cohere even if even if they even if they sort of travel like i say sort of um massive distances and is he and is he someone that has only written poetry or has he written prose as well i i've i've not read um uh, book length prose but um but i uh, but i think there's um essays you know and and um you know quite quite often poets uh indulge in in not indulge what an awful word <laughs> quite often poets um <laughs> uh, uh you know that there there's essays about you know um their own practice um yeah, right. and 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 uh and and criticism in which they they're able to kind of formulate in prose some of the ideas that that, that maybe are engines of, of of their of their poetry so i think right. there's some of that but yeah i've, I've not i've not read a, i've not read book length um uh prose so i don't know whether he's he's written novels or it's only the poems i know 
and I wanted to just ask, come back to you, come back to you to finish this little bit off, was to ask you about. Obviously, you've got your novel, The Paper Lantern, coming out in July. How has that, the process of spending time writing fiction, affected your poetry writing? Well, I just forgotten how to write poems, poems right. basically. Right. Um, yeah, I, it, it, I just haven't haven't been able to but haven't been able to do it but I think there might be other bits and um, there might be other things bit, bit behind that I mean maybe just a natural a natural break or or, or, right, or right. seizure I should probably call it while we're talking about poets, poems but um yeah uh yeah I don't, yeah I don't, it's difficult to 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 sort of rationalize it but it's definitely um it's definitely been a been a fallow period right and have you replaced it with the accordion has that worked? The, 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 <laughs> the accordion, the accordion has been uh, that's been slow progress. Uh, I've been distracted by other, by other things, um, but yeah, I, it, uh, yeah, no, that that's been a failure. I have to say, let's let's put our hands up and call it what it is. You're you're only at the start of the accordion journey, though, Will. Surely I you am. Had but, it for a month or something. Yeah, well, it's been a couple now, and I would have I would have hoped to make better progress, but. It turns out you've got to get it out of the box and practice and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> he has made progress on the banjo, though. Okay. Uh, is that a euphemism, Nina, or is that? Actual, uh... <laughs> uh, what uh, What's going on with the band with your banjo, Will? Uh, well, that, yeah, but I got very, very kindly was uh, somebody somebody um, got one for me, um, right. uh, and yeah, it. I, because I've got because I've played guitar and 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 and, and things like that. There's a, I'm a sort of there's a natural. Um, I'm I'm a bit further down the road, so I can actually get 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 a tune out of it, and that makes right. it much more appealing to to pick up when it's in the corner of the room rather than yeah. starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, with like with the with the accordion and uh, you know, and it, so it, it makes a nicer sound to me, and um, that. Uh, yeah, that's winning the battle at the moment, sadly. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that the update on the accordion banjo guitar um, oh. scenario next month. Will yeah, I'm going for that sort of Dick Van Dyke, Mary Poppins, one man band thing by the end <laughs> yeah. of the, by the end of the summer. Let's 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 go for that. Yeah, very much an underappreciated art form, I think, the one man band. Um, <laughs> All right, well, let's listen to um, a bit of music that Chris has chosen now um, before we start discussing um, his book with him. So this is Infinite Snow by Monolake. So, Chris, that was Infinite Snow by Monolake, which has a kind of killer bass line, doesn't it? It does, yeah. This sort of slow, collapsing, um, thick bass sound to it. Love it. Yeah. Um, um, are you listening to it on massive speakers or are you listening to it on tinny headphones <laughs> at home? Yeah, my, my function ones at home. Sadly not. Um, yeah, more uh, more headphones. I, uh, it's been many years since I've heard it on a on a proper sound system. Um, um, what, any particular reason why you chose it? Yeah, um, it's... My novel's set in Berlin, and uh, Mono Lake is is this guy Robert Henker, who is a um, b- 
Berlin. I don't know if he's born and bred Berlin, but certainly been been based there for years and years, and was kind of big on the on the uh, techno scene. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he followed this trajectory where he sort of in the nineties he made sort of quite dreamy sort of techno, and his his music's become more more abstract over the years. Um, right. And he's had a huge impact. He designed like Ableton, which kind of like revolutionized, you know, sort of DJing and stuff like that. But okay. that particular track has got this sort of, um, yeah, this this brooding quality that that I think um, sort of uh, tallies with the with the book in a sense. It's also got what I'm not entirely sure. Will, as a stringed instrument player, might be able to tell me better. But it sounds like a zither on it, and um, and that's got a sort of link to to the third man, which. Um, you know, my, my book has a sort of um, has a sort of espionage or, or spy strand to it, which um, yeah. and the third man theme is 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 played on a zither, so it's got a possibly um, false but nonetheless uh, true <laughs> connection in a connection in my mind. Tenuous, tenuous extremely tenuous, extremely. Um, but they're they're the best kind, I think. Yeah, they are the best kind, and I'm a big Ableton fan actually. So I'm amazed to hear that he was the person designed that. That's um, that's absolutely fantastic because I love Ableton. Um, mm. But enough of me um, talking about Ableton. Let's talk about A Lonely <laughs> Man, <laughs> which is your novel. It's set in um, Berlin, and it is about a struggling writer who finds himself slowly getting entwined into kind of more complicated lives. Why did you decide to mm. set it in Berlin? Um, partly uh, wish fulfillment. My wife and I were were sort of seriously thinking of moving there a few years ago when our sort of when we had I think one kid at the time I've got two kids uh, but they were young enough that you could sort of think about transplanting without it being complicated right. in terms of schools and stuff um, and because it's it's a city that I love and know pretty well like I've traveled there quite a lot since sort of 2001 or two I think was the first time I went um and I've sort of had a shifting relationship with a little, a little like Roberts in the book, where I sort of went there for the, for the party scene originally. Um, but you know, made made friends there, like German friends, and went and stayed with them various times, and got to know this sort of other city. You know, the first few times I went, I sort of I wasn't even sure there was any sunlight in Berlin, or if there was, it was just early morning sunlight. But it was. Um, you know, and I was just going to these, going to clubs and stuff. But um, but obviously, there's there's, you know, it is a real city. People do stuff other than um, just rave all night there. And um, and yeah, it's just it's just a beautiful place, and it's kind of quite welcoming, um, or it has been welcoming to to outsiders, both within within Germany and across Europe and the world, which has sort of become complicated because it's probably sort of you know one of the most gentrified or gentrifying places on earth, you know, um, which, which is complicated and difficult for a lot of people there. Um, but in terms of the, in terms of the book, it made sense because it's sort of this, this place where there is a sort of, um, you know, English speaking immigrant community. It's somewhere you can go and not necessarily have to be, of the culture particularly to, to get by um and so one of the writers at the heart of this book is sort of on the run and planning his next move and it, and it appeals to him as a, as a place where he can hole up for a little bit and it has that sort of um you know 
it's obviously got a, a prominent sort of division in its history and this 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 sort of single thing divided is one of the is one of the themes in the book in a way that the two main characters are sort of uh almost a divided self you could look at them in some ways like yeah. that so so it had that that element that spoke to to them as well although i must admit that's more of a like retrospective kind of like <laughs> occurrence to me that wasn't right. sort of i didn't really set out and uh, get charts and graphs out and work it out that way but it, it sort of allows um robert who's the main character and his wife to lead a slightly disconnected from the city life isn't it they're slightly floating although obviously she works and the kids are at school and stuff and he's slightly floating as well he's at that sort of time in his life where he's he's done one thing but he's trying to do something else he's not quite sure if it's going to work or not um and there's that sense of dislocation i think in it that um that is really important i think um but it goes yeah i think that's right sorry yeah well yeah i think i think that's right in the in that it is it is a city that sort of (laughs) allows that in a sense you can kind of be be in it without being of it to a certain degree in a way that other places aren't necessarily you know in, in a sort of obviously cities allow that sort of anonymity but but berlin is a kind of um step above or step, step beyond in that sense and yeah so robert is having this he's, he's a very sort of dislocated self as opposed to his wife and, and why choose for him to be a writer why did you think that was a why did you think that would work in the context of this novel well it's funny you know it's i i've got a i've got a pet theory that whatever book you're writing that's what when you go onto twitter that's the kind of book that people are slagging off um <laughs> and i found that uh it's it seemed to me that every time i was logging onto twitter um which is probably too often um you know people would be moaning about books that have writers as the main character um yeah so my my ingenious solution to that was to write a book that had uh, two writers as main characters <laughs> to see if that could, um, that could, you know, win people over. Um, I think in terms of um, Robert kind of, who's really the main character sort of arrived later, but in the original like conception, it actually started with this. I wanted to write about, um, about this world of, of kind of, russia related um deaths like running from alexander litvinenko and through boris berezovsky and anna politkovskaya the journalist um and that that sort of world um and i'd 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 always been fascinated with that ever since the the litvinenko um killing uh i'd sort of followed that case and a few years after it i realized that um I was working at an advertising agency uh, in the West End in London, and um, and I'd occasionally go to this this branch of Itsu to get a um, not product placement to get a fairly disappointing uh, sushi lunch, um, and I would. I, so I realised that it was the one that, that Litvinenko. It was like his favourite restaurant, and he actually went there. Um, he went there the fir- the first time that. Um, his killers tried to kill him and he went there the day they actually did succeed to get him to drink this this radioactive tea that um that eventually you know a few weeks later he did die from um and it was this just this strange collapsing of of space i knew he he you know there there had been a branch of itsu that was shut for you know several weeks because it turned out that it was you know contaminated with with polonium um 
And that was one of the things that really struck me about the case, the fact that it was done with this sort of weapon that, that left this huge swath of not only evidence but like sort of harm you know throughout throughout the center of the of the city it just seemed so um you know i mean obviously assassinating someone is a fairly callous thing to do but it just seemed like above and beyond that and it wasn't like an act of terror which obviously london has seen its fair share of as well but it was it you know that wasn't really the intention it was just like a sort of byproduct if you like um and it was strange, like being in this space, and it sort of, <clears throat> you know, collapsed down these sort of levels. In that you could read about these stories, and they're sort of grimly fascinating, and but they sort of exist in a different world. You know, the world of, um, you know, state-sponsored killing or, or secret agents or whatever. It's like a, it's like a fantasy world, you know. Um, yeah. But suddenly, I was in this space that had been, you know. Um, directly implicated in it Um, and it kind of brought it to the front of my mind again and got me thinking about it Um, and a little while after I read this this long um, BuzzFeed article uh, it was you know thousands and thousands of words long a really incredible piece of investigative reporting that sort of drew these links between Litvinenko and Berezovsky and all these uh, British um, like lawyers and fixers and money men and hedge fund managers, numerous uh, members of this group having been killed and their deaths being sort of like weirdly um, under-investigated or investigate, or, you know, evidence that went missing or, or crime scenes that weren't photographed. Um, and Heidi Blake and her team of reporters made this quite compelling case for... for you know what the reasons for that might be and and that sort of really sort of gave, gave the initial spark i think where these sort of interests of mine suddenly coalesced into into a story i i wanted to tell or wanted to explore anyway but i didn't really want to write it from the position of um someone who was intimately involved in that world like i, I did want someone who was sort of who'd sort of stumbled into it somehow and so the idea for a ghostwriter kind of came from that, you know, someone who could be in legitimately in that world and asking questions about that world and finding out about it, but without um, being of it, you know, and kind of knowing yeah. what the deal is to get involved in that world. Um, and that's kind of where, where this idea for for Patrick arose and how 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 I could yeah get into that story. And how important was the research then in, in writing this? It was it was really important. I read I read uh, a lot and watched a lot and kind of um, yeah hoovered up everything I could find and also um, interviewed a couple of uh, people who'd who'd like tutored um, oligarchs' kids um, to see. Uh, that was when I was at a fair stage advanced. I sort of showed them some stuff I'd written to see if 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 you know. If I was getting anything hugely wrong, or just in terms of atmosphere, you know. Um, right. But I think, you know, I read and absorbed, and at one point knew um, a lot more than than actually went into the book, or quite a lot went in, and then then I was sort of, you know, stripping some out because I think with research like that, you kind of yeah, um, it takes you a while to know what's what's really relevant or what's really useful, and then you probably you tend to like 
overuse it a bit because you know you want to use it or you're really interested in it um but then you realize that to to you know for it to be convincing or for it not to sort of choke the the story you need to you need to pare it back like i didn't really want sort of big um information dumps or to be too um expository you know um and i think that was just a that was just a a, a sort of drafting process but also along the way you know th- this relationship between robert and patrick these two writers and and robert um sort of doesn't know if he believes patrick's story basically the oligarch patrick was was working for has um has been killed or, or hanged himself but patrick said he was killed and he's fled to berlin because he thinks he's he's in danger too and he tells robert this story and robert doesn't really fully believe it but he but he he knows a good story when he hears it and he wants to use that story, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't approach that in a very honest way. So that, that story sort of became the dominant one, really this relationship between them and the, the sort of ethics around using someone else's story for your own, for your own purposes. So, so that also necessitated a kind of um, reduction in the, in the, in the research, but I think it was important to, to have it all there to sort of know it so that I could yeah. <clears throat> to know it before I could step away from it to a certain extent. I think you're completely right because it, it doesn't overwhelm the story at all. And, um, cause I think that, um, it's <laughs> that, that side of the story, the, the kind of true life stuff about oligarchs and their behavior is so overwhelmingly <laughs> extraordinary that it could easily <laughs> have taken over the book, I think, which it doesn't. And the, great thing about the book is there's a sense of throughout it there's a sense of not quite knowing what's going on how dangerous something how dangerous the situations they're in are they behaving correctly in those situations um there's a lot of kind of uh there's a lot about human judgment i guess in it isn't it in um situations and how you behave and how you react to them yeah there is i i think um you know i I guess i was sort of trying to imagine how 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 I would be in a in a situation like that like there's things that Robert you know experiences that are that are sort of corner of the eye things or things you can sort of write and I think it's natural to if you're if you're involved in a um in situations that are that are abnormal in any way often your first response is to is to you know shift your shift the center of normal slightly to kind of incorporate this this new yeah. thing like yeah. i think we're kind of we're seeing it on a on a you know national level with with brexit now and we have for the last few years where you know you kind of every day you kind of your your perspective shifts a little not not that you don't become like a you know foaming at the mouth brexiter but you 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 just sort of it becomes normalized doesn't it and you just have to you just have to deal with it um not that you don't give up fighting about it, but, it, but that distortion is quite sort of insidious in the way in the way it works. Um, and we saw it with Trump in America as well. All sorts of things that you know wouldn't have been part of public debate five years ago now are like sort of on a daily basis. But I think in terms of Robert, he's um, I mean, in some ways he's just he's too busy to be in like a thriller. You know, if you if you're reading a thriller, often something happens that sort of means the character's daily life is kind of 
swept away. You know, they're, they're yeah. sort of taken away from it in some way. Um, and that can be really well done or it can be quite clumsily done. Um, and people also seem to accept that they're in this new reality quite quickly. Um, whereas I think, you know, in, in a in a more real sense, I think you would sort of um, not adapt so quickly to that reality or, or you'd resist it, partly because you, you don't want it to be true. And he's got, you know, kids he's got to pick up from, from nursery and he's got, you know, his, his book he's trying to write and he's got, you know, he's got things to do. I love that about it. Chris, that, that 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 the way that it you know it sort of refused to go into the realms of of the kind of like like you say that that the the the, the action movie or the thriller where they don't even seem to need to eat, you know, like you never see Jason <laughs> Bourne going. Do you know what? I've just got to have a sandwich before we do this next bit because I'm I'm starving here. And I I, I love the way that the, the you know the, it, it, it like yeah it was the the, the thriller element of the to go back to the ideas of form seem to be sort of interjecting on a, on a, on a, on a, on a realist life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. Oh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, um, you like that about it. And I, th- I think, yeah, I mean, to me, that's sort of more interesting. Actually, it kind of, the, the Jason bought, there is a, I can't, I can't remember which one it is. I think it might be the, the one where there was a different Jason Bourne, or am I just getting confused? But there's one uh, one of those films where he kind of wakes up and he suddenly like has to chug like loads of water because he has been like running and fighting and chasing. And those moments are like really great when you do acknowledge the kind of the physical or the mental reality or whatever it is. Um, and there aren't there aren't enough of them, I guess. Um, I mean, there is a place for you know for for the more traditional thriller, definitely, but. Um, but for me, the kind of interest lies in in how these how these things interact, yeah, in a more realistic way. Because all that stuff, you know, to do with the with the Russians, like Matthew was saying, it is it is extraordinary, but it is also you know pretty well documented and 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 real, you know. But the fact is that it's that it seems to be operating on this on this track that that doesn't you know come into contact with our daily lives very often very you know thankfully yeah yeah the um i noticed one thing in it which is uh in luke harding's book mafia state and he talks about windows being Mm. left open when he's left the house coming back home and discovering that someone's been in the house and all they've done is left the window open um which is something that you use in you use in this book i'm sure it's not just luke that's documented that um but there's that sort of unsettling thing of that. Not only is that behaviour normalised, but it it does creep through uh, silently through society and through um, you know lawyers and bankers and all the other people that are supporting these Russian oligarchs who are um, you know strange strange people, aren't they? Because they've made vast amounts of money in dubious ways and are now trying to reconcile that with. Um, trying to be respectable in, or seen as respectable uh, individuals in the West. Yeah, and that, and that runs through, um, I mean, runs right through Westminster. You know, the number of members of the House of Commons and House of Lords who will, who will take up these, you know, lucrative positions on, on boards of um, 
Russian companies and to, to give them this, you know, patina of, of respectability um, or the fact that, you know, I think it was under Tony Blair, you know, you could basically, um, Russians could like buy a visa for, I don't know what it was, a million pounds or something. Um, there's a book called London Grad that, that sort of details it um, because, you know, the, the city of London wanted that, that, money and um was quite happy to to welcome it in and and the amount of you know capital wealth that's, that's left russia in the putin era is is staggering you know billions and billions and billions of dollars um that's now you know through the british virgin islands and cyprus and and all these sort of offshore um locales and and you're right it, it's sort of it's 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 spread much wider than you know i did i didn't want i was conscious um at the time, or maybe not when I was writing so much, but when I was, because I think when I was writing, I was just really focused on on sort of, you know, language problems and and making the book, you know, not be shit. That was the, the main the main concern. But but I did think, you know, at certain points um, about the ethics of of you know of Russia being the villain and and what it means, you know, Russia in the kind of psyche. You know, I grew up in the in the um, I was going to say grew up in the Cold War. That makes me sound like I'm about 80. But but the Cold War was still, um, you know, a very real thing when I was when I was a kid. And, and, and Russia was the kind of, you know, off the peg villain in like yeah. everything. Um, and that's obviously a worryingly one dimensional view. Um, and yet... Yeah, so I did want to sort of acknowledge the fact that that you know that there are lots of um, Western politicians and and businessmen who are who are you know in league with this. It's really not it's not about Russia in the national sense. It's more about um, you know a particular administration and 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 its officials and and their you know actions. Um, that that kind of that are responsible for this for this sort of behaviour. Okay, well, I think we're drawing to the close now of our um, of this particular episode of the Rough Trade Books Club. But Chris, I've got to ask you one final question, which is, what's the bird in the background? What are we hearing? Cheapening away there. <laughs> You're hearing uh, a seagull. I'm quite near Ridley Road Market, so uh, that draws the the seagulls up from the river. And uh, <laughs> I'm sitting in their garden, so yeah, you can you can hear them. I muted when the plane started coming over. Early, but, um, <laughs> it, did right. it did literally right sound like place. the. Like the plane was in your front room. I was quite uh, terrified for a moment. Um, <laughs> so we're going to have a last bit of music from you, which is uh, from Basic Channel, uh, Quadrant Dub, dub One. Um, any particular reason for picking it? It's another bit of kind of Berlin techno, isn't it, Chris? It is, but there's actually um, a part of the book where Robert goes back to um, London to go to a, um, a funeral of, of, a, of a friend, and he... Um, he reminisces about this time where they went out, um, where they went out on a, for a sort of big weekend. And um, yeah, there's several in, there's several moments in the book where Robert sort of loses himself. He seems to have this need to kind of um, you know forget forget who he is or, or what he what he what he's constituted of. Um, and I think this he talks about dancing in this in this space to music that was mostly space and echo and i think um i think there are many bad ways to lose yourself but i think music is a really sort of positive and therapeutic way you know i've, I've sort of um 
had some had some good positive moments of losing myself in uh, in dark basements. So that this 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 record's about that. All right, lovely. Let's hear it then. Mm-hmm. 